Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I am very grateful to be joined once again by Dalia Hatuka. Dalia is a journalist specializing in Palestinian affairs. She is reporting from Ramallah and uh, has been very kind to come on the program uh, on short notice and at a fairly inconvenient time for her. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, Dalia, as, as, as before, uh, very grateful for you uh, coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, I I almost don't know where to begin in terms of what's happening in Gaza. Why don't we just kind of go through what you've been observing over the past couple of weeks in terms of the, the Israeli military operation, in terms of the humanitarian situation, just sort of how bad have things gotten uh, from what you, you're able to tell? Yeah. So... Um... I think some of the worst things that I've been uh, looking at and hearing about, uh, of course, are related to the humanitarian situation, especially because uh, it has become uh, sort of okay. Um, Like there's a green light almost for Israel to attack places where people would shelter, where, you know, they're supposed to be safe. So, for example, there's been uh, airstrikes or shelling or bombardment of uh, 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 UN uh, shelters, uh, UNRWA-run schools, and the hospitals. That's been the the most terrifying of all, is uh, shelling the yards, especially of the hospitals, which have become graveyards, like literal graveyards for of dead bodies because anybody who's uh, tried to leave the hospital premises has been shot at. And then today I saw that one of the last remaining hospitals in the north, uh, it's called Al-Auda, uh, a hospital, I believe. I think the Israelis have taken over according to uh, MSF or Doctors Without Borders. Um, so it's it's a very dangerous situation. We've already seen how, like, there was this awful incident where uh, medics and, and uh, doctors were forced to evacuate from a hospital and uh, babies in incubators were left behind and, and they died and Honestly, it's it's all just very, very grim and very sad. And that's as far as the humanitarian situation. The other thing, I mean, that I've been hearing is that Israel today has shown some willingness to basically possibly have a humanitarian ceasefire so that the hostages can be released. But at the same time, Hamas is saying, um, well, you know, you need to, we need to have a, um, like an actual ceasefire first before we do anything else. So I've been seeing reports that uh, senior Hamas political leader Ismail Haniyeh is uh, set to visit Egypt uh, tomorrow, I believe for talks on the ceasefire and a prisoner exchange uh, with Israel. So there are, you know, some things happening on the ground. 
in that realm. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of people are, um, especially like families of hostages and um, families of uh, Palestinian uh, prisoners and detainees, and also, you know, everybody in Gaza who is under constant bombardment. I'm, I'm sure everybody is keeping an eye on that. So I, I, I want to ask, as you, you mentioned some of the things that have been happening at the hospitals, there was one incident at Kamal Adwan that I, I haven't seen confirmed, but I've seen a lot of video and images of um, what was reported is the, the IDF just going with bulldozers and crushing people, essentially, who are camped out in the courtyard of this hospital. And I, I feel like there's this tension between focusing on each individual atrocity and trying to keep an eye on the bigger picture in terms of just how devastating things are in Gaza. And I, I feel like those are sometimes in tension. But that incident struck me as just particularly heinous. Um, can, you, can you talk about what you've seen with, with regard to that? particular uh, event? I mean, my understanding based on what I've seen other people report, obviously, because I can't go there, is that, you know, Israeli forces are accused of using bulldozers to crush their way into the hospital. And because, you know, there is many people who are IDPs, like displaced people who have taken shelter there, there are reports that um, many have been, you know, buried alive. And I know that the Palestinian Authority Health Minister, Dr. Mayel Kayle, has called for an urgent uh, investigation into it, into the incident, because, uh, you know, like you said, it's, 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 devastating and like you know sometimes like my mind i can't wrap my mind around some of the the reports that are coming out of gaza so my my understanding as well is that you know doctors and other witnesses said that israeli forces like bulldozed the tents that were housing the displaced palestinians uh near the hospital and crushed some of them to death the witnesses believe that the civilians were deliberately targeted. Um, there were several videos uh, shared on social media that also appear to show people crushed under the rubble uh, in front of the Kamal Adwan Hospital. So, yeah, like I said, uh, the health minister, this is the health minister in, uh, in uh, the West Bank, in Ramallah, has been calling on the international community to investigate what happened at the hospital. You know, she's calling it a, a war crime if it happened uh, or how far, you know, it, it, it happened and, or in what shape or form. Um, she also highlighted that the Israeli army destroyed the southern part of the hospital and she said, that there are 12 infants that remain inside the incubators in the hospital without water or food. So that's that's another part of the story that's really absolutely devastating and warrants investigation, but also warrants intervention, obviously. 
I also wanted to get your impression, I guess, of of the incident last week. I think it was on Friday, maybe, where the uh, IDF killed three hostages who had either escaped or been, you know, left alone. And were uh, the reports came out over the weekend, they were, you know, shirtless. Uh, they were waving a white flag. They had SOS had made SOS signs and uh, or banners and kind of hung them around where they were located. And the the IDF killed them anyway because of the potential threat, I suppose. What strikes me, you know, on top of the tragedy that, that that incident is in and of itself is what it says about the rules of engagement that the IDF is operating under. And had these been three Palestinian civilians instead of three hostages, I'm not sure we would have even heard about it. Uh, let alone, you know, have it have it receive as much attention as it did. What was your sort of uh, thinking as you as you saw that story unfold? Honestly, it made me really sad. the The fact that these guys had survived almost sixty days or however long it's been, um, only to be gunned down by their own is is a tragedy, but also it says a lot about the rules of engagement uh, of the uh, Israeli army. Um, I thought it was interesting that um, the media, like mainstream media, a lot of it uh, had been saying, you know, these hostages were mistakenly killed. But I, I don't think the the right the right thought or the right statement is the mistakenly killed. They were killed because the soldiers thought that they were Palestinian, uh, you know? And the fact that, like, two of them were shot at the, you know, immediately one ran away um, into a building. He was speaking in Hebrew. And they still went after him and gunned him down. And I, I just... I. I can't think of anything more horrifying. Like if I were, you know, um, the, a family member of these um, three men, I, I believe I, I'd be horrified and I'd be demanding. First of all, I'd be demanding Netanyahu, you know, to to basically, you know, no longer be prime minister, obviously, to step uh back from that position but also to do whatever it takes to bring the rest of the um hostages back and like you said you know these three guys they were shirtless they came uh out from a building one of them was carrying a stick with a white cloth but you know as far as the army's concerned uh the soldiers felt threatened i don't know why even though these guys were at a distance of about 10 meters and you know they didn't uh, they obviously didn't have any kind of weapons on them uh or anything and uh yeah it 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 just makes me sad really this Something else I wanted to ask you about, and it's um, another one of these issues that's horrifying if you think about it in in isolation, but it feels like paying much attention to it distracts from maybe bigger issues or you know more serious, even more serious issues. But it's it's the systematic, it seems to me, destruction of Gaza's history, uh, and I'm talking about churches, mosques 
government buildings with records that probably go back decades. What's your impression of what the IDF is doing? Is it is it intentional? Is it a deliberate attempt to destroy the history of this place, or uh, is it a side effect? What do you what do you make of it? So, um, yeah, there's been a lot of destruction in terms of you know the culture and the history and the archaeology uh, of Gaza. So, um, for example, there's the the main archive of uh, the Gaza Strip that's being held in uh, in uh, the municipality of Gaza City. So unfortunately, that's been destroyed. Today, actually, uh, forensic architecture, which is, I think you've heard of it, it's a research group, I believe it's based in the UK. It was saying that um, it had a report that said that, you know, a very important uh, archaeological site in Gaza has mostly been destroyed in the Israeli invasion. Uh, the site is near uh, a refugee camp, and it consists of several excavations, which suggest extensive remains throughout the area. And the destruction happened, obviously, because, you know, there's been air raids, there's been demolitions, and now there's the uh, allegedly the you know the water pumps that are being used to flood underground tunnels and the the group uh, links Israel's destruction of you know Palestinian cultural heritage to also environmental damage that's being caused by pumping uh, seawater and they they believe it's evidence of you know, of intent, that there is intent behind the Israeli army to basically destroy whatever they can. Now, the the Israelis themselves have, I don't know if they've actually said that they've been uh, using uh, seawater to pump into the tunnels. I know that U.S. officials have confirmed to some media outlets that Israel has begun to implement this so-called flooding strategy. And uh, I saw something uh, that said that there's a, you know, analysis of uh, ground footage and satellite images uh, that geolocated and confirmed the presence of water pump infrastructure that was installed since the start of Israel's ground invasion of Gaza. The thing is, is the 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 seawater is is not just going to destroy historical and cultural heritage. It's you know, honestly, that this is something that could render the Gaza Strip uninhabitable because it. I mean, even before this, Gaza was barely making it. You know. And this alarming move, uh, which I I heard that the Palestinian Water Authority and like other environmental experts were cautioning against, uh, because they believe that it poses um, a threat to Gaza's only functioning aquifer, which is already on the brink of collapse. And if implemented, this kind of step would inflict. Um, irreversible environmental damage. They they call it uh, a lasting impact 
for generations to come and uh, worsening the already horrible situation in Gaza. Literally salting the earth. I mean, that's that's what this is. Yeah. Um, I know you're in you're in Ramallah in the West Bank and the, the situation. Maybe we could talk a bit about uh, the situation in the West Bank, which has continued to worsen. We've seen more and more intense Israeli raids into cities, into refugee camps, um, deadlier, uh, greater use, it seems to me, of drone strikes, which is something that the IDF only did sparingly. Uh, in the West Bank yeah. prior to the last few weeks. Can you talk about the situation there and, and how it's uh, changed over the, you know, the, the past couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I, I see some changes that are reminiscent of the days of the Second Intifada, particularly the 2002 invasion of the West Bank. So as journalists, we're seeing uh, an increase in the intensity uh, and the number of settler attacks, an increase in the number of checkpoints, uh, the humiliation of Palestinians at said checkpoints and things like that. Uh, if we look at the numbers, since October 7th, almost 300 Palestinians, 75 of them are children, have been killed by Israeli forces. And while the numbers seem uh, low, it's still, you know, very scary to know that eight pe people, including one child, has have been killed by Israeli settlers, especially because the settlers have been getting uh, more ammunition and more weaponry um, as part of a plan that's spearheaded by the minister of, um, I'm blanking, <laughs> the minister of Itamar Ben-Gavir, uh, whatever. Oh, the national his... security minister. Yes, yeah. thank you. So, you know, that, that's been that's been really scary, like for all of us, especially as we try to drive around in the in the West Bank. And it's like, you know, driving around in a Swiss cheese, you know. And I think according to the UN, like now you have a total of like, something like 490 or 491 Palestinians killed in the West Bank in 2023, uh, making it the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since the UN began recording casualties in 2005. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, Israeli forces have been carrying out like almost daily raids in the West Bank everywhere including Ramallah, which is usually spared these kinds of things. I mean, the the only time it wasn't spared actually was during 2002. But anyways, they've been rounding up, you know, a lot of uh, uh, Palestinian men and women in the thousands. So the few that were released, you know, there, there's been thousands already that have been d detained in their place. You know, the list includes former prisoners or, but there's also a lot of activists. There's people who write about the Gaza war on social media. There's teachers, students, and even even people who display like anything that uh, is a symbol of Palestinian identity. For example, like raising flags or carrying pictures of watermelons, which have become a symbol of solidarity. And it's also included Palestinian citizens of Israel. So 
For example, there um, there was this prominent uh, uh, writer and poet who was detained and kept in solitary confinement for a couple of nights, I believe, after she published a post on Instagram that Israeli authorities deemed as promoting hate speech. She she had a like a Palestinian flag emoji, and she wrote something like, "There is no victor but God." And so that that meant that she went to jail for a while. And then when she was released, right now, actually, she's being hounded by people, um, by a lot of Israelis who just stand outside her home and yell things. And um, so it's, it's, it's grim, like all around from the West Bank to Israel proper, and then there's also like in you know East Jerusalem where Israeli authorities have been closing the doors to the Al-Aqsa Mosque for a while now. It's it's been only allowing people who are like really old, like I don't know more than seventy or sixty years old. I'm I'm talking about the super elderly to enter the compound, and that's obviously also leaving a bitter taste in in people's mouths and it it's not helping the situation obviously so that's kind of like a roundup of of what's going on in uh, the west bank including east jerusalem and uh, a little bit in israel as well one of the dynamics that's emerged uh, i think since the end of the ceasefire uh, that was in place for about a week last month has been at least in western media this narrative that uh, the Biden administration is starting to get irritated with the Israeli government, that there there's a gap opening up in terms of the conduct of the war, in terms of protection of civilians, in terms of plans for after the war, and that somehow, you know, Joe Biden is increasingly irritated. Uh, he keeps sending senior officials over to Israel to press the, the message of, you know, doing more to protect civilians, to allow more humanitarian aid in. What do you make of this? It strikes me as kind of a pantomime, especially when these people, you know, Jake Sullivan, Lloyd Austin, they go over and the message is always, we you know, insist that Israel do more to protect civilians, but we're not going to stop sending weapons no matter what. We're not going to give up. You know, we're not going to stop uh, vetoing U.N. resolutions no matter what. Just, you know, please, could you do something about this? And it's it's strikes me as intended more for a uh, an audience in the U.S. maybe than than to actually achieve anything. But I'm curious your impressions. Yeah, it's it's quite laughable, really, because I mean, what what Biden's doing is uh, akin to a slap on the wrist, you know, just going around and being like, oh, please, you know, Netanyahu, can you please do this or that? I mean, this is the president of the United States, like almost pleading with, you know, Netanyahu to end a war or, I mean, he hasn't even asked him to do that. But I mean, we're like 20,000 people dead, you know, that like we're 20,000 people in and the criticism has of uh, Netanyahu by the Biden administration and how uh, Netanyahu has been handling the war, it's almost like it's very slow and it's not enough 
whatsoever because Biden, unfortunately, has acted as a shield for Israel against international condemnation and calls for a ceasefire. Yes, there is a growing disconnect between Netanyahu and Biden and the concerns about people being killed. And uh, among the key points of public disagreement is, you know, obviously the intensity of Israel's uh, military campaign in southern Gaza, and then also the potential role of the PA or the Palestinian Authority in governing post-war Gaza. I mean, we know for a fact that, like, American presidents, apart from maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to think, uh, Jimmy Carter, you know, don't like to fight openly with Israeli prime ministers. Uh, So, like you said, you know, we've had uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, we've had Lloyd Austin, the Defense Secretary, um, we've had the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They've all visited Israel in recent days and encouraged Israel to transition to uh, what I would call a lower intensity phase of the war. But I mean, is that going to do anything at the moment? What What's that going to do, you know, for children who have lost their entire families or people who have lost limbs or I mean, the the horror is so intense that whatever the Biden administration is doing is simply not enough. And the fact that they vetoed the UN Security Council resolution on a ceasefire that would also ensure that the hostages would be released is astounding, is sad, is so many things, you know, that, that are hard to describe. Of course, U.S. officials have kind of played down this whatever um, gap with Netanyahu and, you know, promising to let Israel fight to the end. But yeah, we've seen a little bit uh, here and there Biden like criticizing the uh, bombardment as indiscriminate, which is yeah, it, I mean, it's a stunning admission because of how his aides have withheld public judgment uh, on whether Israel has violated international humanitarian law on the conduct of war, which obviously it has. And I think there was something that happened. I could be wrong, but there was something during like a Hanukkah reception where Biden. Uh, recall the message that he wrote to Netanyahu where he tells him, like, I love you, but I don't agree about a damn thing you have to say. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing today. I mean, that's that's all great. I think it's great, okay, for, you know, people who are, like, watching from afar in, in the United States. But for people on the ground, they are literally in hell. And uh, no one's immune. And I think that the United States has the leverage and the power to ensure an end to this because the humanitarian catastrophe is mounting. Like I said, we're almost at 20,000 people killed. 
And also, I mean, the fact that if if we want to look at this from another angle, he's got the elections next year, and you haven't heard how people, I mean, especially like Muslims and Arabs and pro-Palestinian Jews, anybody and everybody that disagrees with how Biden has handled this, how they speak about like the elections next year. And it's scary because who wants to vote for Biden after what he's done or not done? But at the same time, you know, a lot of people are talking about the alternative, which is possibly uh, the orange man, uh, (laughs) he who shall not be named. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. But there's a there's a lot. There's a lot in there. And I think people are not going to forgive Joe Biden. I think it's going to be part of his legacy in the same manner that this will also be Netanyahu's legacy. I think that's an appropriate place to, to leave it. Uh, again, Dalia Hatuka, thank you so much for coming on the program. And um, we will... Uh, undoubtedly have you back to to continue the conversation. Thank you.